Grab your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 7. This morning, I want you to think with me about God. Now, you might be thinking, well, isn't that the point of every Sunday? Well, yes, of course, but I want you to take a moment and think about what God is like. Consider him in your mind, what you know about him. What comes to your mind? What do you see? What words pop into your brain? This might seem like a fun little exercise, but it actually reveals a lot more about you than you may realize. I've always been struck by this quote from author A.W. Tozer. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, what does that mean? What he's saying is that our view of God impacts every other part of our lives, how we act, how we think, how we talk, the choices that we make. And this is why it's so important that we think of God rightly. To, To get God wrong is not only irreverent, but it's detrimental to our lives and souls. This is why one of the most dangerous things we can say is, you know, I'd like to think of God as fill in the blank. We don't get to design our own God. This is not a build a God workshop, right? And we don't get to stuff God into our little box so he fits with today's modern culture, what makes us feel more comfortable. God is God. He is beyond human understanding. He is infinite and transcendent. He's not just greater than us. He's totally different than us and other than us. He's not even in the same category. So to claim to know who God is is actually a ridiculous thing. And yet, here's the most amazing truth in the world. You can know God. God actually wants us to know him. He has chosen by his grace to reveal himself to us, ordinary sinful human beings like me. And because of how great a privilege it is to know God, we must be sure that we know him rightly as he is. Even the parts we don't fully understand and even the parts that make us a little uncomfortable. God has revealed himself to us in the things he has said, the things he has done, written down and recorded in his word. That's the purpose of the Bible. The Bible is not a history book, though it's historically accurate. The Bible is not a book about how to have a good life, though it's filled with wisdom. And the Bible is not a storybook for kids, though we should read these stories to kids. The Bible is a book about God written by God for God's people to know God more. That's why he has done all he has throughout history so that we might know him and then glorify him forever. And we're going to see this point very clearly today as we continue walking through the book of Exodus. Today we're going to take on the story of the plagues. But before we get into these chapters, don't forget how we got here. And let's remember that God's chosen people, the people he made a covenant with, had become slaves in Egypt. But God remembered his promises to them, and so he raised up a deliverer, a man named Moses. He called him out of a burning bush and sent him to Egypt to face Pharaoh and to bring God's people out of captivity. 
He gave Moses signs to perform, his brother Aaron to help him speak, but most importantly, God gave Moses himself. God was going with Moses to display his power and his love for his people so that they and all the people on the earth would know him. With that in mind, let's pick up where we left off last week. Look with me at Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 through 13. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Uh, These verses right here are really a prelude to the plagues, and they give us kind of a summary of what we're about to see. So let me highlight a few things we see here before we get into the specific plagues. First off, we see that everything that is happening in this story is according to God's sovereign plan. Moses and Aaron do just as the Lord commanded. They aren't acting in their own ingenuity or planning. They are simply doing what God tells them to do. The staff turns into a serpent by God's power. Even when Pharaoh refuses to listen and his heart is hardened, it's just as the Lord said would happen. So what we learn is that God is not just sitting back, watching things unfold. To the contrary, this is God's doing. Second off, we see that the plagues are going to be a battle ultimately between God and Pharaoh, and God will win. God sends his messages to Pharaoh. He performs his signs to Pharaoh and only lets up when Pharaoh gives in. Pharaoh responds by trying to copy some of God's signs. He he calls in his magicians, these guys who are supposed to be experts and wisdom and have some kind of mystical power. And a few of the times we're going to see that they're, they're actually able to replicate some of the same signs as God. We see it right here. They're able to turn their staffs into snakes. Now, did they do this by trickery or by some kind of evil demonic power? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But it does tell us that at the end of the day, they cannot compare to God. Aaron's staff swallows their staffs. And this prefigures the victory that God will have when he swallows up Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea. And yet, here's the third thing we see here. We see that God is going to intentionally delay the release of his people. This first sign right here could have been enough for Pharaoh to let God's people go. I don't know about you, but if I had watched a staff turn into a snake, and then that snake eat the other snakes, I would have said, all right, I'm done. (laughs) Like, y'all go. Just get on. I'm I'm not not messing with snakes. I don't like snakes. (laughs) Y'all good. Get out of here. But Pharaoh doesn't listen. And he won't listen, even when things get much, much worse. The text tells us that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And we will see this theme over and over. Sometimes it will say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Sometimes it will say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And thus we have a great debate. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? (laughs) Did God 
harden Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh hardened it first? Or did Pharaoh harden his heart because God hardened it first? Well, according to this text, both are true. We have this tension here we see all throughout Scripture between what we call God's sovereignty, his control, and man's responsibility or our free will. And this is not something we're going to resolve today. They've been working on that for a few thousand years. But here's what I want us to see. This is the important part. This situation drags on because God wants it to. There are ten plagues because God plans ten plagues. If God wanted to bring his people out immediately, he could have done it. He could have sent an army of angels to fight Egypt. He could have snuck them out in the darkness of the night. He could have snapped his finger and Pharaoh would fall to the ground. But he doesn't do that. He intentionally delays the release of his people and prolongs this story. There are even times when it seems Pharaoh's ready to give in and God puts him back up against the ropes for another round. And he hardens his heart. Why does God do it this way? That's a great question, and we're going to get there in a moment. But first, let's walk through the nine, first nine plagues. We're going to cover the tenth plague this Friday night at our Tenebrae service, which is going to be really good. I hope, hope you'll be there with us. This morning, we're going to cover a lot of ground. The reason we're covering all nine plagues in one message is because this is really one piece of the story. It has one clear message. The first nine plagues are structured as three groups of three each. And each group follows a similar pattern, as we'll see. It's, it's meant to be like a cycle of judgment, with the punishments progressing from bad to worse, with the tenth plague being the climax. So let's just look briefly at each plague, and I'll highlight some key verses along the way, and then we'll come in at the end and we'll sum it all up, okay? But I need you to get ready to flip some pages with me. The first plague begins in Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. Look at your Bible. Moses, he goes out to the Nile River. He meets Pharaoh there as he comes out in the morning. He tells him that because he will not let the Israelites go, he's going to strike the Nile River and turn it into blood. And that's what happens. Right in front of Pharaoh, Aaron uses the staff and strikes the water, and the water becomes blood. It's important to know how significant the Nile River was for the Egyptians. It was the center of their nation in many ways and served several vital functions in their society. This was a death blow to one of their greatest resources. And it was also just plain gross. <laughs> Look, we have a tendency with these Old Testament stories to kind of sugarcoat them and, and make them cartoons. Especially if you grew up in church. I remember the pictures hanging in my Sunday school room. Things always looked so like neat and perfect and, and kid-friendly. I remember in one church I was at, I noticed they had painted a huge mural on the walls of Noah's Ark. And all the cute and cuddly animals were there, and they were all getting along just fine. They were all waving like they were on this floating zoo. <clears throat> and my... My, this is what's wrong with me. I couldn't help but think, man, they forgot one little tiny detail. Every other person on the planet died. Like They didn't, they didn't paint that part. They left that part out. So, so look, when I understand, I understand when we're teaching little kids, we don't need to illustrate all the violence and, and give them nightmares. I have little ones. But we need to remember here, us, that a lot of these stories in the Bible are brutal. They are disturbing beyond belief. 
And we will see this to be true in the plagues. So when we read of frogs and gnats, do not picture in your head a funny veggie tale scene. This is real, and it was really horrible. As we conclude plague one, notice in verse 22 that Pharaoh's magicians are able to replicate this plague. And as a result, Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. The magicians could turn water to blood, but apparently they couldn't turn it back because this lasted seven days. Chapter 8 begins plague number 2. Like the first, Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells him that if he does not release God's people, they will be overrun by frogs. You may be thinking, frogs, that that ain't so bad. I mean, I kind of like, you know, cute frogs. Guys, this was a lot of frogs, all right? They were everywhere, including in their beds and in their food. Nobody likes frogs that much. Once again, the magicians are able to do the same thing. And notice it's kind of funny because they just add to the frog problem. (laughs) And this time we begin to see Pharaoh change. Verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses agrees. He cries out to God. The frogs die, which also became a really... Another gross problem. And here's how Pharaoh responds, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Plague number three is short. It's only four verses. And there's no warning, no conversation with Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron are commanded to strike the dust of the earth and everything, including the people, become covered with annoying gnats. Again, the magicians show up to demonstrate their skills, the wise guys. And look at verses 18 and 19. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The magicians have reached a point where they acknowledge, they say, hey, we are dealing with something else here. This is a God. We cannot keep up with this anymore. This is out of our control. Fourth plague begins the second cycle of three plagues. Look at verse 20. Once again, Moses goes to Pharaoh in the morning. Again, he gives the command, let my people go. And this time, God sends flies. I don't like it when, like, one fly lands on my food. (laughs) This is everything covered in flies. Except this time we see one key difference. Moses tells Pharaoh that the land of Goshen, where God's people lived in Egypt, will not have any flies. This was done to show Pharaoh that the plagues were directed at him and the Egyptians. These judgments were not some uncontrollable act of nature, but God was in control. He was so in control that he could pick the very line at which a fly could not pass. After this plague, Pharaoh begins to make some concessions. Verse 25, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go, sacrifice to your God within the land. Pharaoh says, hey, you want to worship your God? Go do it. Just kind of stay here in Egypt. Moses replies, he says, you know, we can't do that. They're going to kill us if we do that. Here's the next concession, verse 28. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. (laughs) So you can go, just just kind of come back, okay? Don't go too far, stay close. So Moses prays to God. He gets rid of the flies. But look at verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, 
and God and did not let the people go. Chapter 9 shows us the fifth plague. Moses goes into Pharaoh and again gives him the warning. And the next day, the livestock in Egypt are struck down and killed. But again, we have the distinction. None of Israel's livestock are affected, but they are protected. And notice here the increase in severity of the plagues. People and animals now aren't just attacked or, pe- or uh, pestered, but now we have death. And yet, Pharaoh's heart is still hardened. In the sixth plague, just as the third, Pharaoh receives no warning. Moses and Aaron go before him and throw soot from a kiln into the air, and it becomes boils and sores on all the people and animals. For the first time, the people's own bodies are now directly affected. And one final time, we hear from the magicians. Look at verse 11, chapter 9. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Look at the irony. Those once confident magicians, they cannot even stand before Moses now. They themselves have fallen under the judgment of God. But again, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. God is not finished. The seventh plague begins the third and final series. Once again, Moses meets Pharaoh in the morning. And let me just read several verses of this one, Exodus 9. Look at verses 13 to 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. This time, God shares with Pharaoh more of his purpose with the plagues. He tells him he could have wiped his entire nation out by now if he wanted. But instead, verse 16, he says, For this purpose, Pharaoh, I raised you up. Who raised Pharaoh up? I, God says, I raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God gives Moses or Pharaoh and his people here a rare opportunity to avoid the plague. They could believe God's word and bring their livestock and their people inside, and some do, but some don't. The next day, a mighty storm comes with thunder, lightning, and hail, a size never seen before. And all left in the field are killed, except again, in the land of Goshen, God's people are protected. Here's how Pharaoh responds, verses 28 and 29. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. 
Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. This is the most encouraging sign yet. Pharaoh admits his sin. He says he's wrong. He says Yahweh is right. And yet when Moses prays and the storm is taken away, once again, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Chapter 10 brings us to the eighth plague. Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh and warn him again. This time, if he refuses to listen, his country will be taken over by locusts. Look at verse 7. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Things are so bad that Pharaoh's own people are turning against him. So Pharaoh tries another way to get out of the situation. He tells Moses and Aaron that, hey, the men can go, but leave the, the women and children. Obviously, this was not what God wanted. So the locusts are sent. Uh, locusts are not only disgusting little creatures, but they are loud and they are destructive. Can you imagine standing outside and looking to the sky and everything going dark as this giant roaring swarm of locusts descends on your land? It's like the making of a horror movie. Once again, Pharaoh pleads. He seeks help and he receives it. The locusts are taken away. But again, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. Lastly, we have the ninth plague. And just as the third and the sixth, there's no warning or discussion. God sends darkness over all the land of Egypt. So dark, no one can leave their home for three days. Pharaoh makes one last plea for the people to go, but to leave their livestock behind. When Moses refuses the offer, here's what Pharaoh says. Verses 28 and 29 of chapter 10. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Here we've reached the boiling point. So chapter 11 is a short chapter. It tells us that there's going to be one more final plague that will bring all of this to an end. Look at Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Here's the final plague. Jump to verses 4 through 6. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. And here's the final response. Jump to verse 10. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. What comes next from here is the foremost event of the entire Old Testament, the event that gives this book its name. The Exodus. And we're going to tackle that this Friday at Tenebrae. And we're going to actually talk about this next Sunday on Easter and tie it all into the resurrection. But this morning, I want to spend the rest of our time, just a few more minutes, by returning to the question I asked earlier. Why did God do it this way? 
Why did he stretch this situation out and punish Egypt in so many different ways when he could have delivered Israel quickly and painlessly? And why did he harden Pharaoh's heart to seemingly make things worse? We find the answer mentioned several times by God himself in these verses whenever he uses the phrase, so that, or that. Let me just rattle them off real quick for you. Listen to me. Chapter 8, verse 10, God says, So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. 8.22, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9.14, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Chapter 9, verse 16, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Chapter 9, verse 29, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Chapter 10, verse 2, that you may know that I am the Lord. It's clear. God brought the plagues on Egypt and hardened the heart of Pharaoh and did all of this so that he would be known. So that he would be known by the Egyptians. So that he would be known by his people Israel. So that he would be known throughout all the earth and so that he would be known by you and me here today. So let me close by giving you three things God wants us to know about him from this passage. Here's the first. Number one. Know that the Lord is the only God. He's the only God. The ten plagues were not only an attack on, on Egypt's power and people, it was also an attack on their gods and their religion. Egypt was a polytheistic culture, meaning they worshipped all kinds of gods. And it's been well documented through study of Egyptian history that many of these plagues were likely directed at areas where their gods were supposed to be in control. For example, the Nile River had its own god who guarded it and who provided the people with its mighty water. So what do you think the people thought when Yahweh turned the Nile to blood? The gods that they believed existed to protect their animals and their crops and their health and their prosperity were fundamentally dismantled and embarrassed. Even Pharaoh himself, who claimed to be the son of a god, a living embodiment of deity, was exposed as a fraud. God used the plagues to reveal that there is no other god but him. And we need that same message today. Look, we may not bow down and sacrifice to gods today, but we worship them all the time. We just don't realize it. We idolize and devote our lives to all sorts of things, and yet none of these things compare to the one true living God. Nothing else is worthy of our worship and devotion. God wants you to know he is the only God. Here's the second thing God wants us to know. Number two, know that the Lord is the almighty God. One fascinating aspect of the plagues is how God used creation to bring judgment. Think about it. Think about the things he used. Water, wildlife, the weather. These are things mankind has been attempting to control for a long time to no avail. But God's power extends over all of his creation. What he created, he can use for his purposes. It's his. He can suspend the laws of physics to do as he pleases, and there is nothing beyond his sovereign control. We see in the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible that God, day, that God will one day 
use again the elements of the created order to bring judgment on the world. What he created for mankind's benefit will be the instrument of their destruction. God is the Almighty, meaning he has all power and there's nothing he cannot do. Here's the third and last thing God wants us to know. Number three, know that the Lord is the saving God. Despite God's terrifying judgment, don't miss the fact that throughout the whole story, God always spared his people. This entire smackdown by God was used to save his people. That's the way God operates out of judgment. God saves those who turn to him and believe and trust in his salvation. And the same thing is true for us today. Now listen to what Peter wrote, 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter said this, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Just as in Egypt, a day is coming when God will once again bring judgment on the sins of this world. He will deal with the evil and the rebellion, and he will make a new heaven and a new earth. Right now, we live in a very special time. We live in a time of God's patience, where God is holding back his judgment so that we have an opportunity to repent and turn to him and tell our friends and our neighbors and the whole world about Jesus. See, God doesn't want any to perish. He wants all to know him in a relationship. But one day that day will end. So the question we need to leave with today is this. Do you know him? Not just do you know about him and you've heard the stories. Do you know God personally? The creator and sustainer of all things. The almighty, the ruler over all. The one and only God. Is that the God you know? Here's the good news. You can know him today if you will trust in his son Jesus. That's why Jesus came. God sent his son to take his judgment for your sin on himself instead of on you. He took your place, and he's done everything that is required for you to be forgiven and saved. If you will just trust in him, the Bible says there is no judgment and no condemnation for you, and you will know God. He will be your father, and you will be his child forever. Do you know him? Let's bow our heads and pray.